the last uh, couple of weeks that have been the in this month leading up to Rosh Hashanah, we've been looking at the laws of tshuva, uh, repentance, <coughs> or self self analysis and correction, <coughs> eliminating the errors of the past. Let's say, let's try to wrap it up by. Uh, looking at a, a brief summary of the laws that we've, we've learned and completing them because there's a section that we did not study yet together and see if we can put it into, into context and see how it all fits in with the, the work of Rosh Hashanah. Can you hear? <laughs> um, let, let's begin with a few questions. This mitzvah of tshuva that we've been speaking about, teshuvah, the mitzvah of so-called... No, it's good, it's good. The mitzvah of repentance, so-called repentance, the mitzvah of return really, teshuvah really means going back. One of the questions that we can ask about it is that we do not do it on Rosh Hashanah. You know that this time leading up to Rosh Hashanah, this time of Elul, this month, is the time of preparing for Rosh Hashanah. And we are doing the mitzvah now. The mitzvah is... What we do now in this month is we move closer. Move closer. By moving closer to the spiritual position, if you like, we do that by means of a radical look at the self and an attempt to, <coughs> to fix or to clean, cleanse, revise, revamp the self. In the ten days, so-called ten days of repentance, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we do that again in a very intense fashion. And Yom Kippur itself is a, is a, is a climax of the mitzvah of Tshuva. Many of the prayers you'll see on Yom Kippur are phrasing this idea. We say vidui, confession. It's built into the tefillah. In fact, the ten times on Yom Kippur that we actually go through the process of confession. We do it in the plural. One should put one's own private singular version in as well. While we're on the subject, let me mention something very important, and that is on Yom Kippur, when we do the mitzvah of tshuva, which is the, the confession, right, vidui, the, the speaking out of that which it, one has done that, that, that's wrong, you have to be very careful there, because the phrasing that we use omits one essential part of the mitzvah. Right? It's an important thing to know. You know, there we say, ashamnu, bagadnu, we have sinned, we've done, we've we go through the alphabet, we, we, we go through all parts of the mind and the body, elements of interaction with other people, areas of our social business and other areas of life. We, 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 we go through all the mistakes, at least the categories of errors that have been made there, and we say the vidu, the confession. We also express remorse, regret and shame, which is the second element of tshuva. But the third element of tshuva, which is absolutely essential, is this statement that you won't do it again. Right? There are three elements to Tshuva. One is vidui, confession, we've discussed this. Second is the expression of remorse, regret, and shame. And third is what we call Kabbalah Le'asid, that means taking on not to do it again. You'll notice in the Yom Kippur Tfil, if you look in the Matzah, you'll see there's no time when we say that. We do talk about what we've done, and we do talk about regret and remorse, but there's no place where you say that it won't happen again in the future. And without that, the Tshuva is not valid at all. Right? Of course, the first question is, why is it not built into the, into the language of... of yeah. But the reason there is not hard to understand, and the reason is because 
like all Jewish prayer, the prayers there are expressed in the plural. We never single ourselves out. Right? That means the way that the prayers are formalized in the, in the, the Amidah, let's say, the, all, all versions of the, the, the tefillahs that we say, the prayers that we say, we always phrase in the plural. Right? There's a very important reason for that on, on, in Rosh Hashanah, particularly important not to single yourself out. When you do that in the plural, then you can say, as a people, that we have done things we shouldn't have done. And you can go through, certainly as a people, we can go through all the categories of mistakes that have been made spiritually during the year. And we can certainly do that in plural. I can say that we have done it. I may not have done this particular example or that particular example, but there's no no question I can speak about us having done those things. When when we speak about remorse and regret, you can also speak in the plural. There's no question that those on, on Yom Kippur who are saying that they have regret for the past, certainly can say that they have regret. It's an honest statement. And I can say it, I can say that we who stand here, together with all other Jews on earth, we feel this, this sense of shame, remorse and regret. But there's one thing that we can't say in the plural, and that's that we won't do it again. I can't say that for you. I can't say that for you. That wouldn't be honest. I can only say that I won't do something again. But I, I can't possibly say that truthfully about you. And therefore, if you're going to speak in the plural, are we together? If you're going to speak in the plural and say we, then there's no way you can honestly put in a statement that we won't do it again, because I can't speak for you. Only you in the depth of your own private dimension can make that resolution that you're not going to do again some issue that's been, that's been your problem. And therefore it was not phrased in the tefillah. But you have to put it in. You have to put it in. The prayers are phrased for those. They assume that you have the minimal Jewish knowledge to know the basic elements. And therefore, on Yom Kippur, when you go through the things, you say, we have done this and this and this. And then you say, we feel remorse and regret. And then privately at the end, you have to say, and I will not do this again. You have to say that. Of course, you, there's, no, there's no harm in putting in your own personal version of the mistakes as well. You don't, you're not only speaking the plural. When you get to the end of the Amidah, you also should put in your own you can put in your own private version of the specifics. You should put in your own private version of the specifics of the things that you have done. <coughs> the particular events and occasions and so forth. The more you say, the better. So, the question that we faced with at this point is, why on Rosh Hashanah do we not do tshuva? Now, that's very peculiar. Not only don't we, you definitely shouldn't. should not do it. You shouldn't even mention yourself on Rosh Hashanah. In no way at all. Not that what you've resolved to be better, not what you're planning to do, and not Nothing. That's very peculiar. That means the month of Elul, you prepare yourself for this day of judgment, and you do it by by, by remorse and regret and eradicating the past and taking on for the future. And then after that, you do that even more intensely until Yom Kippur, you spend the whole day doing that. But on the day of judgment itself, when you're actually being looked at, no word of self-correction or remorse or nothing. The only thing we speak about in Rosh Hashanah is Hashem, God being king, that's all. That's all. That He is the king, that He should be the king, that His kingship should be manifest, Totally and absolutely. That's all we focus on. But you have to understand, it's a day of judgment. You know, it's like, if you want to make an analogy in the secular mode, the analogy would be a person is on trial for his life, on trial for his life, and he utters not a word in exoneration. Nothing. Nothing. Doesn't appeal, doesn't say anything. Waits until the judgment's over. Speaks only about the greatness of the judge. And then, ten days later, he attempts to have his case heard on appeal. That doesn't make any sense. If you know anything about the legal system, you don't do that. You're much less likely to get your thing changed by an appeal later after you've been convicted before. You don't do that. You try and get off in the first place. 
But that's exactly what we do. We, we prepare for the trial, that's true. But when it comes to the moment of actually being, when the judgment is being issued on that first day, in Rosh Hashanah in the morning, your life is in the balance. Then what's going to happen the next year, spiritually and physically? It's being decided now. So you want to look absolutely the best you can. Not a word about yourself. That needs explanation. Why is that? Why is that? Especially if Rosh Hashanah is the day of the root. Rosh Hashanah is the day of the source. Rosh Hashanah means you're going, this is the root, the, the, the nucleus, the conception, the years being born here. Everything looks the way the conception is. When a child is conceived and the genes of the parents fuse, if the genes fuse in such a way that this child will have blue eyes, he for sure have blue eyes. The way the genes fuse at that moment, you can't change those later. You want to change them later, you need crude, gross surgery. So the whole year will go the way the conception is taking place. So how come on that day, if the whole concept, the whole concept is you're coming here to the moment of, of root, of conception. And the nature of Tshuva is to go back to the root of who you are. That's what Tshuva is. What could be a more perfect day for going back on that day of the creation of man? To go back to the sense of your own creation, as it were, for the few... We don't do that at all. That's a mystery. It needs explanation. It needs this. Perhaps the second question we can ask. What does the shofar have to do with this? The shofar. Yeah, we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. What does it have to do with this whole story? What does it have to do with Tshuva? Or the fact we don't do Tshuva in Rosh Hashanah. What does it have to do with the fact that Hashem is king of our What is the meaning of the shofar? And how does it fit in? Let's see if we can... Let's see if we can approach these issues and try and get a deeper understanding of what exactly is going on now by means of understanding the mitzvah of tshuva and its spiritual depth. See where that takes us. Let's begin with a brief revision of the components that we looked at before. <coughs> I'm sure a little revision won't harm, even though I'm equally sure that you're all experts. In fact, I'm not only sure that you're experts, I'm sure you've done it already and you're all cleansed and pure and absolutely angelic. But I'll, I'll, if you're that angelic, you won't mind sitting through a little Torah revision. So for the benefit of that odd individual who isn't entirely spotless, let's see if we can revise briefly the components, very briefly the components we looked at, and then we'll move on to the parts, more difficult parts that we didn't look at, and then see if we can try and delve into the depth of what's happening here beneath the surface. The Mitzvah of Chiva, we said, as you recall, has three inalienable parts. The three parts of the Mitzvah of Tshuva that always must be done involve, as we said, past, present and future. Past, let's start with the present. Present is vidui. Vidui dvarim, you have to say what you did. Past, regret and remorse. You have to express the regret and remorse, the wish that you hadn't done it, that if you could you would undo it, and the shame that you feel about what you did. And thirdly, future, that you will not do this in the future. You have to obviously make a decision and a statement that you leave this thing behind you. You can't be sincere about your tshuva if you're planning on doing it again. Those are the three absolute requirements. You can memorize one sentence that puts them all together. The Rambam says this. It's worth memorizing. You can look it up. It's in the very first paragraph, in the first chapter that the Rambam writes, and you find it easily and well translated. You say, Ana Hashem, which is an addressing, you address Hashem, you address God, you say, Ana Hashem, Chatasi ovisi poshati lefanecha. I've sinned in front of you, these three words, as we tried to explain before, these three words indicate different levels of uh, intention. The first one means unintentional sin, the second means deliberate, even though I knew it was wrong, and the third means I did it because I knew it was wrong. Right? That's particularly difficult level. 
That's your preamble. You now introduce the fact that you know whom you're speaking to. And you say, Lefanecha, that means in front of you. That's how you set the scene. And then you say the three elements in one brief sentence. The three elements of Tshuva. Asisi, I did, kach v'kach, thus and thus, whatever it is. You spell it out in your own words. And then you say, v'hare nichamti uboishti b'maasai, I regret and I'm ashamed of what I did. And thirdly, lo'olam eni I'll never do this thing again. That is the mitzvah, one sentence, and you have totally eradicated the issue in the past. The, uh, you say, you want the Hebrew phrasing? You say like this. First of all, you say like this. Ana Hashem. Yeah, please Hashem. Chatasi ovisi pashati lavnecha. I've sinned in front of you. In English, we don't really have words separating these categories of sin. I have <coughs> offended your, your reality, right? Your law, which is you, and I've gone against that. That's your preamble. Vaasisi kach vekach. And I have done, and then you fill in what you did. So that's called vidu. That's the mitzvah of confession. Then you say, Vahare, nichamti uboishti b'maasai. I regret and wish I had not done it and I'm ashamed of it. And thirdly, I'll never do this thing again. The Rambam says, if you do that and you mean it, then whatever you did is completely eliminated. Completely. No further, not mentioned again, not in this world, not in the next, no punishment. Completely eradicated. That's the good news. The difficult news is you have to mean what you say. If you're mumbling these words, yeah, that, that this is what I do, and you don't mean it, it doesn't wipe out anything, and you just have a new averity or debit. That means you just did a new sin, which is lying through your teeth to Hashem, and that you have to do tshuva for, and you have to mean the tshuva too. <laughs> so that is not. You have to mean. You have to mean what you say, and we tried to explain here on a previous occasion. That meaning it does not only mean that you understand the words, it means that you have shifted yourself from the position you occupied before, namely being the kind of person you were before, you've shifted yourself to a position where you are no longer that person. And if you want to measure the distance of the shift, and this is, this is hard, to, hard to understand and hard to put your head into, but if you want to measure the distance of the shift, it has to be as serious and as significant as the punishment that you would have had to go through would have moved you. If you want to weigh how much spiritual energy, how much intention, how much work on the self has to go in here, you have to understand that the amount of spiritual energy that has to be put in here is the same currency, the same value in spiritual terms as the pain you would have had to suffer in this world or the next if you had left it up to Hashem to correct you like a parent correcting a child through pain, through difficulty, through punishment. Because that's your option. You're either corrected by the work of Tshuva, you go back and eliminate the past through this incredible mitzvah, or you leave it up to Him to do not... Yeah, but to you. And that, however much punishment you would have, however much pain you would have had to go through, and how much pain would you have had to go through? Exactly as much as the damage you caused by what you did. It's all a completely self-correcting system. Complete measure for measure. Exactly the amount of pain you caused the person in that relationship is what you would have had to go through. You want to measure what punishment is? You want to know how you look in the next world? Everybody wants another future. You know, you've got palm readers and crystal ball gazers and coffee grounds. grounds uh, you don't need them, I'll tell you, and you don't even have to pay me. You're, what you look like in the spiritual world, you can assess very easily. You look exactly like what you've put out into the world. Yeah. How much pain have you caused in any particular relationship? 
That is exactly the damage, the grotesque, that means the, yeah, the, the expression of pain that the, that the spiritual world now wears is the expression that will be on your face when you, when you are forced sooner or later to face yourself. There are, sources, there are sources that say that the pain you have to suffer in the next world, after you leave this world, for having hurt someone's feelings, is that you have to sit facing that person, feeling what they went through, that you made them go through. You have to feel it. But not only that, you have to feel it again and again and again and again and again and again. Not only that, but everybody else watching too. Even though you might have done it in private, it's exposed. One of the questions here, of course, is why do you have to go through the thing again and again? I only hurt his feelings once. You know? I, only, I only hurt him once. Right? How come I have to... <clears throat> but the understanding of the sensitive understanding is, of course, we, we're using childlike terms here, but there aren't, there aren't deeper words for these things. The depth here has to be incorporated in your own, within your own sensitivity. The reason that you have to go through these things again and again is very simple. In that world, you're not capable of change. In the spiritual world, you can't change. That's the whole idea. Of what life means is that you can change. Life means you inhabit a vessel, your body, your vessel, which is your body, your emotions, the tools that you've been given... And you can use them to make a change. On the contrary, that's what the tools do. When you use your tools correctly, your tools are your body, your mind, your emotions, the stage in which you operate, the relationships around you. When you use those tools, they drive inward and they make a change in essence. That's what life's for. When you move into that world, you can't make any change. All you are is your raw consciousness in that world. That's what it means to have died. It doesn't mean that your mind goes or your mind disappears. That's the only thing that remains. What is stripped away is your body and your, the scenario and the opportunities and the tools. What remains is your mind. And that cannot change. You can't change it because you're not in a world of change. You're in a world where you become, you, you're frozen, you're fixed. From one particular perspective. And therefore what happens is when you feel a certain amount of pain there, there's a desperate desire of the neshama to assimilate that pain and use it to change, but you can't change in that world. You had your chance. This world is a world where you grow, develop and change. There you're frozen. And that is an expression of the pain that the soul feels. Instead of being corrected, it feels the deep desire to take in this experience and use it correctly and become high and elevated in it. God. Of course, you understand that that pain corrects you. This is not a process of endless vindictive suffering. This is a process where you feel the missed opportunity that you're now in another mode and eventually there's a correction that is affected by the virtue of the very fact that your soul's not able to change. The regret and the pain that that causes, if you were look in the Kabbalistic writings, the way it's expressed is, you get changed and elevated as a free gift. It's given to you as a gift. It's done, it's done, it's done to you. And the, and, and, and the humiliation you feel is the humiliation of somebody who receives a gift, the greatest gift, it's yourself. For free. Because right? the whole idea of life is to earn your change. The reason that you put into this world is not to be perfected for free. On the contrary, you have to sweat and struggle and bleed for your perfection in this world. That's why you're here. So what happens in the next world is your perfection is guaranteed. This is a father who's going to make sure that every child turns out perfect. That's not up, there's no options there. The only option the father gives is which way do you want to do it as a child? You want to do it together with the father? Cooperate? Or you want to be... Perfection is guaranteed. The difference is that when you do it here, you have the sense not only of your perfection, but the fact that you deserve it, you earned it. This is, yeah, the, the work that was put in here, the work itself is mine. 
And in that world, when it's done, the sensation is the sensation of having been perfected as a free handout to somebody who never made the effort. Of course, it's that humiliation which we spoke about that is the correction. Of course, you realize what the path of a tzaddik, the path of a righteous individual, is that when he works to correct himself in the world, he doesn't take the credit for that either. Understand? What a tzaddik does, a righteous individual, says to Hashem, look, I can't do anything without you, it's all you. Even the work that I do is your credit. Gives that back as well. So, in summary, tshuva has to be the distance you have to move yourself when you say that you no longer would, I would not do this thing again, you mean in depth, and ultimately what you're hoping to get to, what you're striving for is, I wouldn't do it again, not just because I've learned self-discipline, and not just because I'm afraid of punishment. What you mean is I wouldn't do it again because I'm not the person who could do those things anymore. That's an immense change. It's virtually miraculous. To change yourself to become a person who no longer wants what you wanted before, that's virtually miraculous. To become a person who no longer will do what you used to do, that is also virtually miraculous. To become the kind of person who's got the self-control to control areas that you couldn't control before, that's also amazing. But to become the kind of person who no longer wants what you wanted before, that is almost miraculous. And that's what you're here for. That's what life is for. And real tshuva means that you change your desires. So, let's understand that in a little bit more depth. Changing desire, we've discussed this in the past also, and I will not dwell on it, but just to just try to extract from this area of the discussion what we need for tonight's theme. The real change in depth is not a change in the externalities of how you go about doing certain things or how you gain the self-control so that you externally more refined. The real depth of change is that you become so centrally, so deeply changed that the things that you used to do before that were wrong, you don't do now because you don't even want to do those things. And the reason that that's so important is, and this is the most fundamental thing to understand, is that what you are is what you want. What you are at root is your desires. And I've, I must have said this many, many times before in these discussions, but the concept of rotsoin, of desire, original desire, that means will or volition, in Hebrew the word rotsoin has the same numerical equivalent, the same gematria as the word makor, which means the source. Actually, Shmaya, Shem's name, has the same number, the ultimate source. But a source, by definition, is the beginning of a process. That's what a source means. If the source has something you can trace it to, then it's not a source. That other thing's the source. The source of who you are, the ultimate source, the the place where the river flows, outflow begins, at the very top of consciousness, if you want to make a graphic image, it happens to be this place here where a baby's skull is open, if you want to know where it is in in the spiritual world. That place is called your makor. It's actually called a fontanelle. You know what that means in French? Not font means? Means the source. That is where you originate. And where you originate is your rots and what you desire. Because anything that you do in your life must begin with a volition. If you're going to make a meaningful move, if it's a meaningful move, it's an expression of something that happened inside. And the something that happened inside is an expression of something deeper. And if you go back to the ultimate source, it's a will or an ambition or a desire or a volition to do that thing. Where does that come from? What originates that? No answer. There's no answer. 
it is actually there's an answer, but it's, that takes us into a different different realm. That's, that transcends the self. That is opening the self to something higher. The first moment of consciousness is the moment of I want that process. At the beginning of the process, you see it in many ways. One way you see it is that the the word for a source, makor, the word for a source, makor is the same equivalent as the word rotson, as we said. Another way you see it is that the beginning of any production is the father. In the Kabbalistic system, that's called the father. Just like in the production of a child, the beginning of the process is the father. The mother picks it up and builds it into life. But the process begins with the father. Very brief, the father's only involved in the giving of a genetic code, and the rest is picked up by the mother, and conditioning, depending on how she puts it together, that's how the expression will be. In Hebrew, the word for a father is Av. Av is the very beginning of the Aleph base. You can't have a more minimal word than that. To have a word, you must have at least two letters. And the very first two letters there are in Hebrew is Aleph Bet. You can't do less than that. The very first two... Do you understand what's being said here? The, the beginning of all expression, you can't phrase any word more primary, more basic than that. The word is Av. And in Hebrew, Av means a father and it means desire. Avo means to want. Same root. means original desire to produce and give. Then the woman picks it up and that's why a mother in Hebrew is called Aim. Also the Aleph, which is the first letter, and then the middle letter of the Aleph base. And her word, Aim, means Im. It's totally dependent on her, if. The word for mother in Hebrew is the same as the word for if. The word for father is the same as original desire. The word for mother in Hebrew is the same as if, condition. The father begins the process, but she defines the conditions. How she puts it? In summary, if you want to change who you are, you have to change what you want. And that is virtually miraculous, because how do you change a source? Once you have a source, you can redirect the source. And maybe you can even stop up the source. Maybe you could, but how do you change a source? How do you go beyond the source? You can't. By definition, that's where it begins. And that's why we say it's miraculous. But it can be done. And perhaps sometime we have to go into a more detailed discussion about the, the nature of that effort. But if you've done Shiva correctly, you become a person who doesn't do what you used to do before because you wouldn't want that. Last year you did that thing because you had a tremendous craving for that thing. This year you feel sick at the thought of doing such a thing. That is a genuine change. That's a genuine change. And therefore, if you can make that change, you don't need to be punished. What was the purpose of the punishment? The purpose of the punishment was to make you this kind of person. That's why you were... So if you've just shifted yourself through that distance and you've become this kind of person, that's why you don't need to get punished. Right? Because the work's been done. What we're saying is, let's just extract very carefully the focus here. The focus is you have to go back to the root of who you are. That's what Rosh Hashanah is. It's a day of going back to the root of everything. That we'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. Let's go through the laws. Vidui, right? You have to say what it is that you did. I'm not going to go over the every detail in detail. I'm just going to mention them briefly. You remember the details? You have to say it with your mouth, not just think it. We went into discussion about that. Vidui is called Vidui Dvarim. You must speak it out, just like prayer. The mitzvah of tefillah needs to be spoken, not just thought. It has to be brought into the world. You have to say it loud enough for your ears to hear. Secondly, only your ears. No one else allowed to hear. Right? The very deep reasons why no one else is allowed to hear the vidui that you say. Only yourself. Thirdly, any language. Right? Any language. Hebrew is better, and we discussed its conditions and how you can, you can benefit from 
Loshon Kodesh from Hebrew, even if you don't speak it, you can benefit, for example, by speaking in any language during the time that a minion's davening, which opens the same gate spiritually. It's all discussion how that works. But of course, it's the, the ultimate thing is to mean what you're saying, and therefore, if your language, you need to use the language that you can express yourself in best. And finally, the more you say, the better. The Rambam says quite clearly, the more you speak out, the better. And the reason is, as we explained, not because it pays to say a thing again and again. That's a mistake. It's because the more details you speak out, the more of a cleansing effect there is. You want to work through all the areas of your consciousness. Everything you do, every time you do, every time that you have done something you should not have done, there are many elements involved. Not only the action. There's the thought, the thought beforehand, the thought afterwards. There's the planning, the time you wasted, the time you wasted in planning this sin, the time you wasted in doing it, the influence you had on other people, the desensitization of your own. There are all sorts of problems. Those are all elements of damage. And therefore, you want to go through each of these areas and express the cleansing or the, uh, the correction of each of those areas. That's a summary of the laws of Vidu. Secondly, there's the expression of regret. The expression of regret is the feeling of remorse, you have to speak that out, and shame as well. The lowest level here is to feel regret because you may be punished for this thing. But it's good enough. It's a perfectly good start. But eventually you want to get to a level where you feel the regret because you understand what this thing is that you've done. Thirdly, thirdly, is the question of deciding and saying that you won't do it again. And that, we discussed the complexities of that. Basically what you mean is, not a prophetic statement that you won't do it again, nobody can, nobody can say that, but what you mean is that if I were back in that situation now, as the Rambam expresses very clearly, if I were back now in that situation where I once fell, now, due to my level, due, due to my process of correction, not because I'm too weak or too old or because the opportunity is not right, but because I've reached the level of self-correction, this time I wouldn't do it again. Right? That is the expression for the future. If, of course, you do it again in the future, you have to do it again. If you do it in the future because you didn't mean sincerely what you said, then you're in big trouble. Right? Then you're not allowed to... Then you are not... Of course, you can't... Chiva uh, said insincerely is uh, worse than useless. There are other things, incidentally, which hinder the process of tshuva. I don't know how frightened we want to make ourselves this evening, but if we want to go for total abject terror, <laughs> then I'll just mention this. I'll just perhaps mention one of them so we don't get too much of a dose. The Rambam has a chapter including, in which he details 24 things that obstruct tshuva. What he calls ma'ak vinesa tshuva. There are 24 things that make self-correction difficult. Right, it's, worth, it's worth working through. Some things are so bad a person is not allowed to do tshuva for them, that means Hashem doesn't give you the opportunity. Some things are so insignificant that you don't remember them and correct them, you think they're nothing. There's a whole list of 24 categories of things that do not stop tshuva, because nothing does. Sincere tshuva wipes out all sins. However, there are 24 things that make it difficult. And I want to mention one of them, which is perhaps the most, perhaps the most difficult. And that is, a person who says, I'll do this thing wrong, because I'll do tshuva for it afterwards. What's the problem? I'll do this thing wrong. The Torah has a mitzvah of tshuva, so I'll do it, and then next week, or Yom Kippur. Or a person who says, Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness, I'll do this thing, when Yom Kippur comes along, I'll be forgiven. The Rambam says, if you do that, you do not get forgiven. That's a bad mistake. Don't Until further notice, if you are going to sin... Right? then don't say to yourself, 
I'm going to do this thing wrong because I can always correct it later with tshuva. Don't do that. Because if you do that, you block the effect of tshuva and it does not operate. Rather say to yourself, I'm doing this thing because I'm a weak, you know, individual, I've got no self-control. Don't say, I'm going to do this because I'll correct it later. (laughs) It's very interesting to understand why that blocks the mitzvah of tshuva. Why does it block the effect? What's the reason? I think if you think it through logically, you'll, you'll, you'll see the reasoning. But it's, a very, it's very illuminating to understand. The reasoning is this. Stay with me carefully. It's beautiful to understand. It's a beloved thing to understand these, these types of things because you see the mechanisms in the spiritual world. You know, many people have the concept that the spiritual world is a world of sort of vague notions that somebody put together. Or You see from these kinds of discussions the beauty and the scientific precision of the spiritual world. Why is it that when you do a sin and say that you're going to correct it later with tshuva, the tshuva doesn't work? Why? And the answer is because you sinned against Chiva. What you did in this Avera, in this sin, is you damaged the Chiva. Understand how that is. Why? Look, why did, you, why did you do this thing wrong? What was the cause of your doing this thing wrong? Chiva, no? You wouldn't have done it otherwise. Why did you say to yourself, look, I'm going to do this thing because I can always fix it later. What, do you, what are you saying? That if you couldn't fix it later, you wouldn't have the chutzpah to do this thing. You wouldn't have the guts to do this thing. Why are you allowing yourself to fall into this sin? Because you're telling yourself, it's okay, I'll fix it later. So the tshuva that you intended to do later became the reason that you did this thing now. You involved the tshuva in the sin. Now you want it to fix you? Do you understand what's happened? You insulted... You hear this? You slipped the tshuva into your avera. That's what you did. You said, look, I can do this thing now, right? Because Yom Kippur is going to fix it. Now you want Yom Kippur to fix it? Yom Kippur is the reason you did this thing. You want to use it to be the hetter. That means the reason you did it wrong and now you want it to fix you? The other problem. You poisoned it. You killed it. You didn't kill it. You made it part of the problem. Now you want it to be the solution? And therefore, don't do that. Keep your tshuva perfect. The way you keep it pristine and, and, and absolutely pure, the real way you keep it pure is you don't use it at all. Don't do anything wrong. But if you've done it wrong and you need to, at least have it there for yourself. But to have said that you're going to do this thing wrong because you can always fix it, that's a disaster. <laughs> that's just the beginning. There are 23 others, but uh, that's the beginning. So, these are the three elements. How's that for summary? Vidui dvorim, the confession itself, regret for the past, acceptance for the future, not to do it again. So far, so good? Okay, now, let's go to the two areas that we did not study and see if we can open them up in just a bit more detail. And these are very, very difficult areas. We can't deal with them fully, but try at least to give an outline of the subject. When the thing that you did wrong was against another human being, not just against Hashem, but you offended Hashem's law, you went against the Torah in the format of hurting someone else, then these three elements do not begin until two others have been completed. Okay? In other words, if you did something that you should not have done that transgresses a Torah law, not involving someone else, something private, you had food you shouldn't have eaten, you broke Shabbos, you made an oath that you shouldn't have made, uh, mitzvahs that we call between man and God, between you and Hashem, then you need these three elements that we spoke about, under certain circumstances, it's forgiven immediately. Under other circumstances, it's forgiven when Yom Kippur comes along or when you undergo some suffering. But that's all you need. 
However, if this sin offended the Torah law by virtue of harming someone else, like you injured someone physically, you hurt someone's feelings, you harmed them financially, indirectly, directly, that means you did one of the things against another person, not with another person. Sexual crimes are considered private. Those are between you and Hashem. Whether another person is involved or not is not the issue. They've got their own problem, their own agenda they have to atone for. And in the course of an interrelation, that means a relational problem, a relationship problem, there may have been things that were, that, that were, that were both forbidden by the Torah, which means against Hashem, and also harm to someone else. That could also be. But we're talking about where the victim of the Alvaro is another person. In such a case, you cannot do tshuva until you've done two steps beforehand. And they have to come first and they have to be completed. And the two steps are, first of all, you have to make up the damage, or pay for the damage, undo or pay. That means you have to wipe out the damage. You can't possibly be tshuva, do tshuva while, while the person's still hurting. Right? You, Ramam says if you try and do tshuva before you fix up the problem, it's like going into a mikvah for purification while holding in your hand the source that contaminates you. You can't do that. First, you have to move, you have to leave, you have to... And secondly, even more difficult, you have to gain the person's forgiveness. What we call the fayes, that means you have to appease the person so that they do not hold it against you, they drop it, it's not an issue, there's no grudge, it's not... And these are both potentially very difficult, very difficult steps. In the, in the best of cases, it can be easy, where it's somebody you know, and you know that there's a problem, and you simply pay or offer to pay... And you apologize. That is clean. The slate is cleaned. No more damage here. And then you still need the three levels of tshuva. Because not only did you hurt this person, but any time you hurt a person, you're also offending a mitzvah. Torah There are some circumstances under which it can be very difficult, extremely difficult, to fix up difficult, fix up problems that have hurt other people. And it can be very difficult, perhaps even more difficult sometimes, to gain forgiveness for a damage or a hurt that you've caused someone else. So let's try and discuss briefly how this operates. First of all, making up the damage means you have to pay. You have to pay. If you owe the person money because you were once an employee of the person and you didn't work properly or you expropriated or misappropriated funds or because you damaged their property or whatever it was, you have to make good the damage before you can do tshuva. If you did something that's not directly financial, sometimes you can make it up by payment. Right? For example... There's a, big, there's a whole section in the Talmud dealing with financial obligations for physical injury. Let's say you hurt someone. Let's say you hurt someone. Let's say you embarrass someone in public. Let's say you injure them and they get humiliated at the same time. So the general rule is, without going into all the details, in Jewish law, if you harm someone, if you harm someone, you injure someone, there are five payments you have to make. There are five payments you have to make. Right? Very briefly, without all the detail... One is called Nezek, that means you have to pay for the damage. You have to pay for the physical damage. And that is measured in terms of lifetime employment difference. Now, if, you, if you injure someone so they cannot use their hand anymore, right? no one can value what a hand is worth. But you pay for the lifetime loss of earnings. That means the financial, yeah, the person's status on the, on the employment market that you have damaged through this injury. You have to pay for that. It's assessed on a lifetime basis and you have to pay for that. Secondly, you have to pay what's called Sheves, which is unemployment. Not just that they can no longer be employed the way they've heard, but while they're recovering from the illness of this broken hand, and they cannot work, you have to pay the difference between the subtracted <laughs> lifetime earnings 
And what they can do now, maybe they sit with a broken hand, they can be a watchman, they can guard. Yeah? So then you subtract what they can earn from what they could have, and you have to pay them the unemployment difference. Third, you have to pay all the medical bills. That's called ripui. And it's done incidentally beforehand. Not that they hand in the receipts and you pay. It's done by expert assessors beforehand. And if the person heals quicker than normal, he gets to keep the difference. No? That's called report to pay all the medical bills. And then you have to pay for shame and pain. Boishas and tsar. You have to pay for the humiliation that the person experienced during this injury. Even if there was no injury. For example, if you embarrassed someone, but yeah, you spat at someone. There's no medical bills. Presumably, there's no... Um, unemployment, but there's humiliation. You have to pay for that separately. And then you have to pay for pain. Because pain has got nothing to do with the unemployment or the, or, the, or the earnings. That's a subjective issue. You have to pay for the pain. There's a very interesting discussion, which I'm not going to go into now, of how these things are assessed. How do you assess how much pain is worth? What is the worth of a broken arm? What's the value? How do you value that? The pain. The Talmud's got a very interesting discussion. You make a market assessment of what people would take to go through the pain of a broken arm. What's the going rate? What would people take to experience? There's a price. There's a price. You're probably quite surprised how low it may be. The Gemara decides that that's not valid for various reasons, and the the final solution that the Gemara comes up with, at least one option is, you pay for that aesthetic that people... What would people pay to be relieved of the pain of a broken arm if they were having that pain? What's it worth? One of the cases the Gemara discusses there is a person who's been sentenced to have his arm broken. Let's say a person lives in a country where the king has decreed that he'll have his arm cut off. Let's say the injury was someone injured a person and they became deprived of their arm, right? That's what the injury was. How do you pay for the pain? So the Gemara says you assess what would be the value of a person who's sentenced to have his arm cut off and the executioner says to him, look, I cannot, there's nothing I can do for you. I'm under orders of the king, I have to cut your arm off. But if you pay me, I'll give you an anesthetic that you won't feel it. How much would a, you have this logic? How much would a person pay to not feel that pain? That's the market value of the pain. Okay, there's a whole assessment here, pain, shame, etc. But these are the five things you have to pay. So, whatever the scenario is, you have to pay for the damage. There are some difficulties here. What happens if you can't find the person? What happens if the person's not alive anymore? What happens if you ran a business dishonestly and you can't begin to find the people? One man said to me, I've been running a business for 25 years. So what he said to me. So I've got an important question to ask you. I've been running a business, a very, I, know this indiv- I, mean, I knew the man personally, he's a very wealthy individual. And lately, in his life, he's been getting much more religiously knowledgeable and observant. He said to me, look, I'm bothered by the following problem. For 25 years, I've been running a very big business. And for 25 years, I've been overcharging and undersupplying. Now I want to do chiva. The first problem is the man's not worth the difference. Do you understand? He's not worth now the difference between what he should have charged and what he did. And secondly, how does he find the people? It's a big business for many, many years. Jews, non-Jews, who knows where they are. Until further notice, if you're going to sin, do it privately. Don't involve other people because sins against other people... Until further notice, don't do anything wrong. (laughs) But this is a problematic area. So, I just say that, although we can't go into the details now, 
what is brought in the halachic sources is that all of these things can be corrected. No matter how impossible it seems. If the person is not alive anymore, then what's brought down halachically is you should give to the estate or the inheritors of that person. Because that is where the value would have gone. If you can't find the people, then what you can do is, and often this actually happens in practice, in these sorts of situations, is you make an assessment of the value that you think was involved, even if it can only be done over a period of time, perhaps, the giving, and you give to a community project, even though you can't begin to find the individuals. Because when you do something for the community, the benefit ripples out, right, into the whole community, so that the people or their descendants will ultimately reap the benefit, even though it's not an ideal method, because it doesn't redress the specific wrong, but you try to get as close as you can to that person or people, or place, and you give that, you divest yourself of the improperly earned or gained amount, and you give it into a situation where it will ripple out and benefit the... Yeah, where it came from. That is one... You... When you can't afford a thing in Jewish law, you still owe it. So, for example, if you steal from someone, you can't afford to pay it back, you become their slave. You work it off. You work it off. If in practice there's just no way and you can't, then you've been denied the privilege of fixing this thing up. You're in trouble. But it doesn't alter the fact that you, that you owe it. The spiritual aspect is that the Rambam says that there's no sin that's not amenable to Chua, which means that you will be given the opportunity. You'll be given the opportunity. That means there's nothing, if you're sincere, that's not amenable to being fixed. So you'll find a way. The second part is more difficult. And that is you have to forgive. That means you have to get the appeasement or the forgiveness of the person. This can be very challenging. So let's try and discuss this so we understand the practicalities. Again, the easy case scenario is where a person in a relationship has not been behaving correctly. Very often happens parents and children, for example. And you say, look, I've become more mature now. Realize what I haven't been relating to you in a perfect fashion. If you like, and you need some way to open the discussion, you can blame someone else. You can say, I went to this lecture the other night, and the person there said that you have to honor your parents in incredible fashion. So you say, look, Dad or Mom, you know, I've been almost perfect as a child, but not entirely perfect, and so therefore, like, would you forgive me? You know? that, and the person says, sure, it's forgiven. That is the best case scenario. They forgive you, and it's over. The difficulty is where either you can't find the person, or they're not alive, or more more um, relevant for most of us is a situation where you can't bring yourself to face the person and apologize or ask them for forgiveness or you assess that even if you did they wouldn't forgive you. Right? The commonest perhaps is a person who just feels they just can't face the person either because they can't face them or because the person doesn't know that it was me. Either they don't even know that it happened, or they don't know that it's me who's been sticking this knife in their back for the last who knows how long. And I now have to go and say to them, look, do you know that most people, I would say, actually can't handle facing such a situation? Sometimes some people have the strength to do it, but they feel that the person won't forgive them. So how, what do you do then? Let's say you gather together the courage and you say you're going to do it and you find a way to do it. The Rambam says if you can't handle it, you write a letter, you, you send a fax, an email. He doesn't say email, the Rambam, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever it is. You, 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 you send your friends, you send a delegation, your friends, their friends. You make... Yeah. Let's say you put all that together and you know this person, they're so deeply hurt. I mean, it happened such a deep pain that you know that the person's... Or the person is too petty or they're not going to forgive you for whatever reason. 
What are you going to do then? What are you going to do? This is a very, very serious, uh, difficult issue. So let's try to let's try to think this through and uh, see. First of all, <coughs> the obligation is to ask the person. Right? The obligation is to ask them in whatever way is feasible. If you can't face them personally, then you should make representation. You 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 send a message. You send friends. You send. Incidentally, the Ramam says that if you make representation, that means you ask the person a few times, and they stubbornly refuse, it becomes their problem. That you're not obliged to keep doing that. You do it a reasonable amount of times, whatever that is, you make it clear, sincerely, the person keeps knocking you back, they don't want it, then it becomes their problem. The only exception is if it's your Torah teacher. If it's your Rebbe, it's your Torah teacher, and he will not forgive you, then there's no limit to the amount of time you have to go back. He's teaching you. There's a reason. He's not forgiving you because you need... And you have to go back a hundred times. Very interesting discussion in the Talmud about this. But there's no limit to the amount of work you have to do in this area. But with that exception, you have to think. Just, there is also an important thing while we're on the subject that if someone asks you for forgiveness, you should certainly give it. In fact, if you really want to know, you should forgive them even if they didn't ask you. Why? Because it's considered a particular cruelty not to forgive someone who needs it. What do you do? What do you do if you can't bring yourself to forgive the person? You should do it anyway. But if you're, if you're weak psychologically and you need help to find a way to forgive the person, or you're weak emotionally or you've been so deeply hurt, etc., then there is a very interesting and beautiful and effective method you can use. And that is your own selfish benefit. By which I mean this. First of all, the simple level that affects most people is, it's not good for you to hold that thing. (coughs) First of all, you're not allowed to hold a grudge. You're not allowed to bear a grudge. And secondly, it's not good for you. It's not good for you to live your life on some hurt of, of the past that somebody caused you. It's not good for you. Most times you need to drop that, right? So you can move ahead in life. That's a selfish motivation. But even better motivation often is, <coughs> what happens if on Rosh Hashanah you're standing and you need Hashem to forgive you, right? Let's say you've done something that wasn't perfect, and you have it on your conscience, and there's a heavy judgment hanging over your head, and you need Hashem to forgive you. And you haven't worked that thing out fully. You haven't corrected yourself fully. Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. There's no forgiveness that's not deserved. Yom din means exact judgment. This is a courtroom where they apply the law. If you walk into a court in this country or any country in the world, and you're on trial for murder or who knows what it is, and they say, what do you got to say for yourself? And you say, please, please, please. They're not impressed by that. They apply the law no matter how many times you say please. You say, please forgive me. The law doesn't work that way. And the high law doesn't work that way either. It's Yom din You get judged. You get given exactly what you deserve. Because judgment in spiritual terms means you get what you are. You get what you've done. Not somebody gives you. That is what... That can't be changed at all. It can't be changed because it's you. You've done that. So asking to be forgiven when you don't deserve to be forgiven is definitely not going to work. There's one way you can make that work. If you once forgave someone who didn't deserve to be forgiven then you're going to get forgiven when you don't deserve it. You know why? Because you do deserve it. Because that's what you did. Here's this miserable individual who caused you who knows how much pain, and now they've got the chutzpah to want forgiveness. 
And they certainly don't deserve it. They deserve to burn for years. That's what they deserve. <laughs> and you say, you know what? I forgive you. It's an immense, immense achievement. So when they look down at you, and you stand there revealing yourself, as it were, you have, you have as part of your reality, the, the, this issue of having, yeah, let that, th- so it's going to happen to you. Mida connected mida, mida connected mida, measure for measure. That's a very selfish way of beginning the process, but it's good enough. And therefore, that is a... Yes, you have mentioned that they should forgive even if we are not asked. That means Hashem expects us to be best, better than me. Hashem doesn't forgive if we don't ask for forgiveness. Not only do, do we have to ask for forgiveness, we have to have remorse, as you said before. Why should a human being be better than God and forgive even without you asking for forgiveness? That's a good question. Let's not confuse the, the two parties here. What that person's going to get depends on his remorse and his chiva. Um, Again, I'm forgiving him for what he did to me. But why should I? I'm with you. That individual, when you talk about being better than Hashem, that individual getting his atonement and his forgiveness does not depend on my forgiveness. That's up to Hashem. My part, my job, is to take myself out of his situation. That's all. But why do I have to do it? That's what I mean. I, I, I mean, it's better, I understand. Psychologically, it's better to do it. Yes. But why do I have? Why does Hashem expect me for me to live better than him? He doesn't forgive if you don't ask him. Why should I forgive if someone didn't ask me for forgiveness? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah, right? Not whether you are better than him or not. If you want to know, there are cases in which he forgives in which you don't ask and you don't deserve. For example, the Raman says that in Yom Kippur, when the temple stands, the Seira Mishtalech, the, you know, the, the, that atones for the Jewish people, even those who didn't do Tshuva, for certain sins. It's not so clear that he doesn't forgive without being lost. Secondly, he guarantees your perfection. That's something you don't do. He guarantees your perfection one way or another. You've got no claims here that you're better than him. However, you have a mitzvah here, and it's considered a cruelty not to do it when you should. We say tefillah zakah. You know that's a very important thing before Yom Kippur. We are... You should come to your Kol Nidre early and you'll find in the Maxwell before the service begins is a lengthy tefillah which is a very heartbreaking, heart-rending tefillah in which you go through all aspects of your life, every part of your body, every part of your interactions. It's very, very specific and very... hurts deeply because it's... God's very deep. There's one part of Tfilazaki you should be sure to say early on in case you don't have a, much time. And that's a very moving thing. It says like this. You say, Hashem, as I stand here before Yom Kippur, I hereby forgive anybody out there who has done anything to me, whether they've asked me, they haven't asked me, whether, whoever, I drop it. Yeah, I don't want anyone on my accounting this Yom Kippur. I don't want anybody's problems on my... I forgive. And then you say, and the merit of this act that I'm doing put into the hearts of anyone out there that I need to forgive me, that they should also drop anything they have on me. Huh? Just hold, wait, wait, one second. And therefore, I'm enough trouble with him. Okay. <laughs> and now, the, uh, that is what you should do, is let it go and give that person the... Uh, give person now, what happens if you feel 
that the person will not do this for you if you ask them. Right? Not only that, but sometimes your assessment is that you'll make it worse. Because not only the person won't forgive you, they may bear a grudge against you now, they may take revenge, both of which are Torah prohibitions. You know that? Nakama and Natira, you're not allowed to bear a grudge against someone, and you're not allowed to take revenge. You know the difference? You know the technical difference? The difference is that if you go to your neighbor and you say, can I please borrow your, I don't know, your lawnmower, right? And your neighbor says no. A week later, your neighbor comes over to you and says, can I please borrow your lawnmower? So you say no. <laughs> that is called nekama, that's revenge. Revenge means doing to a person exactly what they did to you. You're not allowed to do that. Bearing a grudge is like this. You go to your neighbor and say, can I borrow your lawnmower? He says no. A week later, he comes and says, can I borrow your lawnmower? You say, sure, I'm not like you. <laughs> that is... That is called... That is called bearing a grudge. You're not allowed to do that. You have to say nothing and lend him your lawnmower. If he's not suitable to lend lawnmowers to, that's a different question, right? If he's the kind of fellow who eats lawnmowers, then... <laughs> but, yeah, you Is this clear? And therefore... You're not allowed. Now, if you know that this person you are asking for forgiveness is a person who is so deeply hurt or is not a bentora, a person who doesn't understand these things or a person who is problematic, or, then, and he will not forgive you and bear a grudge and take revenge and ruin a relationship and who knows what sorts of that may speak lost and horror about you. Go around telling everybody, you know what this person is. How do you handle, how do you handle that situation? That can be extremely difficult. So, it's like this. Let, let's be clear about this. First of all, there's no question that the best option is to face the music and provided in your judgment you can get the desired result. That means if just a problem of your courage, you should find a way to address the issue. Many times the issue is that there's been a problem in a family for many years. People haven't spoken to each other. It's ridiculous the way these things happen. Absolutely ridiculous. People have a problem in a, often in families. It's the reason that the temple hasn't been rebuilt. People hate each other. For no reason. I've come across families where first cousins have never met. And you ask them why, they don't really know. Because 45 years ago, somebody's bar mitzvah, somebody else was late. <laughs> and then he didn't think, and they didn't get an invitation, and somebody got... Uh, and that was... That's, absolute, that's absolutely ridiculous. The, the reason the temple hasn't been rebuilt. If that is the case, you go home tonight, you go home this evening, and you pick up the telephone, phone Australia, it makes no difference. You wake him up at two in the morning, it's irrelevant. And you say, look, I'm sorry. And they, I'm sorry about it. <laughs> Fix it up, absolutely, there's no question about it. It's ridiculous. But, in a case where you think, well, that's not the issue, it's not your courage, but either it is a problem that you just can't face it, or you, how do you handle that situation? So, there are two opinions in our halakhic authorities. And I'll be honest with you, not everybody agrees here, there are two opinions... And what I'm about to tell you, not everyone agrees with. But there are very broad halakhic shoulders that authorize what I'm about to tell you. And when the other option isn't valid, this is the one that should be used. And that option is, you can ask a person to forgive you without telling them what you did. Because if a person says and means, I have nothing on you, then it's valid. If you sign a check for me and I fill the mountain provided your account has the balance, it's a valid check. If they sign the check and they say, whatever you've done, I forgive you, 
You have it. The problem is they have to mean that. And it's, that is problematic. If they're saying some words that they think is some ancient ritual, because you're some religious fanatic, because you, you come to the JLE on Wednesday nights, you've got to be <laughs> completely... Then that is not valid forgiveness. It has to be meant. And that's why those who don't approve of this method are hesitant, because can, does a person really mean a blanket type of forgiveness? But if they do mean it, and often they do, for example, in families. We have a custom before Rosh Hashanah that we say to people in our families that after whatever happened in the past year, anything they say, I completely forgive you. And the other person says to you, and you mean it, you mean it. Not least because you need theirs, so you give yours. But you mean it. Parents, certainly, parent forgives a child for what a parent doesn't mean. Of course they do. You don't have to go into the specifics. You mean whatever you did, it's... And therefore, if you ask a person to let it go and drop it and forgive you, and you don't say what it was, if they say it, they mean it, it's valid. There's a right way to do this and a wrong way. The wrong way to do it is as follows. The wrong way. You walk up to the person and you say, uh, Hi, how are you doing? And they say, yes. <laughs> and you say, look, you don't know what I did to you, but would you forgive me anyway? That's the wrong way to do it. Because when you, when you say that sort of thing, a person... A person who doesn't know what the thing was, their imagination starts to run wild, and by the time they end up, they're not going to forgive you. They're going to build this thing into who knows. That's not, what you do is as follows. You say, hi, how are you doing? And they say, yes. And you say, you know, next week's Rosh Hashanah, right? And they say, yes. And you say, you know, there's this very interesting ancient Jewish tradition that before Rosh Hashanah, we all forgive each other. For anything that ever happened, we just say to each other, forgive each other. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) And then you say the following. You say, so I just came to tell you that I'll forgive you for anything that you may have done. You can forget about it. And then you say, and by the way, if there's anything I ever did to you, I'm not saying that there was, but you know, in relationships like ours... In wonderful relationships like ours, you know, sometimes things aren't perfect, and who knows, who knows, but in case there ever was anything that I did that was perhaps a little bit less than perfect, would you mind (coughs) forgiving me? And if they say, sure, then you have, they have to mean it. again. If they think they're mumbling some, um, you know, ancient formula, that is not valid. But if they mean that, whatever it was, and strictly speaking, even if they say they forgive you, even if they are the kind of person who, if they knew what it was, would not forgive you, it could still be valid. Why? Because presumably, they wouldn't forgive you if they knew because of their own vested interest and their own emotions and their own pettiness. They couldn't rise above that. But you prevented them that problem. You haven't given them that problem. You didn't tell them what it was. So they're not affected by their own emotions and their own... And therefore, they can be large enough to say, look, it's not, you know... That is a valid way of... In many circumstances, it's better not to address the issue, because sometimes there are prohibitions involved, sometimes it's so clear that the person will take it wrongly, you won't get your forgiveness anyway. Sometimes there are other issues in the Balchuva world, the world of those who grew up and experienced a life that was not at all religious, and then they became more observant, there are unique problems. For example, sometimes a young person has been through a life where there was an, an intimate relationship perhaps, with someone or many people and now that they've become much more observant and it becomes much more important to them they may wish to go back and 
work out an issue or gain forgiveness and so forth, that's very problematic. Because to enter into those old relationships when you're in a different phase of your life, that itself can be worse than... It can be problematic. Usually... That kid needs special and personal counseling or perhaps talk it up with somebody knowledgeable in this area because often you can make a mistake here where the, where the, the consequences are worse than the original problem. But in general, in general, that is the mitzvah. Let's wrap it up as follows. Those are the five components to tshuva, right? The three parts that you always need, vidui, regret for the past, taking on for the future, and a precursor to those three if the sin was directed against someone else, which is, first of all, making up the damage, which we discussed briefly, and appeasing the person, apologizing, asking for forgiveness, having the issue dropped. That is the second component. Let's go back to the question we asked in the beginning and see if we can put it all together, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. Why don't we do Tshuva and Rosh Hashanah? What does the shofar have to do with this? And how is your inner desire connected to this whole discussion? Very briefly, in just a couple of minutes, it's like this. Shiva means going back to your pristine and original purity. You want to go back to a situation, when you were born you were pure. There are no problems then. No, no spiritual blemishes, no mistakes had been made. You want to go back to a situation where all the damage that you have accreted, attached to your neshama, that's all dropped. You want to go back to that. Rosh Hashanah is the time of going back to the root. Tshuva is the time. Tshuva is the mitzvah of going back to your root, your makor, Ratzon. You go back to the desire that fuels you, that single underlying engine that drives all that you do, and you cleanse that. You go back to that. Rosh Hashanah is where the year goes back to its point of origin. The ultimate point of origin, right? Stay with me very carefully. The ultimate point of origin of the human being is that which transcends him or her. It's above you. The only way to change Ratzon, the only way you can change your Ratzon, you can't possibly change it by saying, you can't, you can't say, Hashem, this is what I want, and then say, I want something else. You can't do that. You're lying. You can't do that. You can't say you want something that you don't want. You can't develop a desire that you don't have. You are what you want. How can you change that? You can't lift up yourself up by your own. <laughs> you can't do that. Even if, you, even if you, 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 you're powerful enough to meditate so deeply that you get to the root of who you are, and you come face to face with your prime desire, and you know what that is, how do, you get, how do you get a different one? That's who you are. From where do you get a different one? Right? And the answer is there's only one place. That's from beyond and outside you. And the only way you get that is by giving up the one you have now. You can't go and do another one. You can't go out of yourself and get another one. But all you can do is dissolve and eliminate the one that you have now. That destruction of ego, that being prepared to put aside that thing which is most deeply who you are, in other words, put aside the vested interest, the childish for me, in it. Put that aside. You get given another one. That's a gift you get given. It shines in. It shines in. Spiritually, you have to make the source of your being transparent. Rasim Chavasaman used to say, the world is full of light, except where we cast the shadows. So you have to take that root of yourself, your most intense vested interest, and you have to be prepared to give that up. If you give that up, you get given a more powerful one. It comes from beyond you. On Rosh Hashanah, what you do is you go beyond the self. Rosh Hashanah, you don't work on me and what I'm going to do. You speak only about your source. On Rosh Hashanah, you disappear. You become completely transparent. All we do on Rosh Hashanah, we speak about Hashem. Malchus Shomayim. Total and absolute rule. That's all there is. You talk about Hashem being king. You know, we say, just to give you an example, we say, how intense is this? 
We say Maloch al Kola Oilam Kuloi. Right? We say in the prayers on Rosh Hashanah, we say Maloch al Kola Olam Kulo. Listen to the Hebrew words carefully. Maloch, that means rule, al Kol Haolam on the whole world, Kulo, all of it. What do you mean, all, all of it? You don't, what does that mean? You said, rule over the whole world, the whole. What? You duplicate. Our sources explain very beautifully. If you said rule, Hashem, rule over the whole world, what does the whole world mean? Halachically, we have a concept called ruboi kekuloi. A majority as good as the whole. In, hal- in halacha, a majority is good as the whole. If you have a meat stew, and one drop of milk falls in, fine, it's all meat. Under certain circumstances. Because the majority annuls the minority. So halachically, when you say all of a thing, you might mean the majority. Strictly speaking, from a Torah perspective, 51% annuls 49%. So if you said, Hashem, rule over the whole world. What do you mean? You mean 51% is good enough. And that's not Rosh Hashanah. When you say, you mean every last pygmy. Every last forgotten Hottentot. Every last corner of the, 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 the Andaman Islands. I don't know where it is. That's what you mean. There's not a, not a nook or cranny left in the world that doesn't glow with a Kvot Shemayim. That's what you mean. And therefore, that, that's the intensity of Rosh Hashanah, is deeper than Shiva. You're going back to the ultimate source, where you transcend yourself. Right? You take yourself out of the picture entirely. It's dangerous to put yourself in. On Rosh Hashanah, the last thing you want is the spotlight focused on you. You blend into that vessel of Hashem's presence in the world, which is the Jewish people. I sit among my people, that's all. You are part... That is what the sound of the shofar is. Very briefly, the shofar is the sound... It is that tool that takes you back to the source. The shofar is not words. When we speak to Hashem and Rosh Hashanah and we try to make Him king, we do it in words. Tefillah. The shofar is deeper than words. It's a voice without words. You know, the law of the shofar is that it sound like someone crying. You know what crying is? Crying is a broken voice that doesn't say anything. But it's much more eloquent than any words could ever be. The shofar has to be a scream, which is a voice, a, a, yeah, a voice that is wordless. No amount of words can say what one scream of a child in the night can convey. The shofar is exactly this depth of tshuva. It means going back to the point of origin. You know, Rosh Hashanah, according to one opinion in the Talmud, is when man was created. The day of Ayom Haras Olam. This is the day that man was created. You're going back to the point of your pure creation. Shofar takes you before the words, back to the voice itself. When you speak, the first thing that comes out is the voice. Then your mouth starts manipulating that sound into words which are always problematic, they always lie. When you want to convey the truth, it's not in the words, it's in the sound of the voice. In fact, if you want to listen to somebody and hear if they're telling you the truth, don't listen to their words. Listen to the voice itself. Because often you'll find it's got nothing to do with the words. You know, when the Torah talks about prophecy, which is the higher language, that is the person transcending himself and moving into a higher world. doesn't talk about words of prophecy. It talks about the voice. When Abraham, Abraham, when Hashem told him, your wife is speaking words of prophecy, you don't know it, but she's a prophet. She's higher than you at this point. Listen to her. The Torah says, Shma Koila. Listen to her voice. It doesn't say listen to her words. That's not natural. Someone's giving you good advice. I say, listen to that person's words. Listen to what? No, no. Torah says, listen to her voice. Then he understood that this is something deeper than the words. The shofar is that voice. And therefore, you know what the word shofar means? Shofar means the shofar that we blow. 
It also means beautiful or perfect. Shapir de Yerushalayim, the beautiful people of Yerushalayim. Shapir, perfect or beautiful. It also means to improve. Shipruma Seichem, improve. That means elevate them. And there's another meaning of the word Shofar in Hebrew. You know, when a child is in the womb, it is surrounded by a bag of membranes containing fluid. That's called Shfir. In Hebrew, Yashfir v'shilya. The shilya is the placenta, the afterbirth, and the membranes that surround it, that enclose the liquid in which the child is contained, is called Shfir. That's the same word as Shofar. When you blow the shofar, what you're doing is you go back into the womb of human experience. Back into the womb of your own spiritual development. You go back into that time which says, Who could give me like those days? Those months of the previous life. When I was guarded, as it were, by Hashem, inside that primal state when there's complete perfection. Tshuva means going back to that stage. Rosh Hashanah means where the world goes back to that stage. Shofar means going back into that world. And it's the voice that does it. When Hashem sends the prophet to the people of Yerushalayim, he says, Cry out in your throat, do not hold back. It doesn't say cry out in your mouth. Forget the words, the words are not important. Go and cry out in your throat. It's the voice, you open your mouth. The voice comes out, they hear the call of the shofar. And that's what it says. Go and cry out in your throat. Right? Do not hold back, like a shofar lift your voice. Okay, we'll stop.